0: All right, so turn with me to Joel chapter two. The book of Joel, it's, in case you do actually have a for real Bible, uh, the book of Joel is towards the end of the Old Testament. It's between Hosea and Amos, um, so that should help you find it a little bit. The book of Joel is one of those books that is highly underrated. We should be preaching out of it more than we do. And the reason why I say that is because the book of Joel, even though it was written in the um, Old Testament, is actually a prophetic word, for the New Testament church. It is a prophetic word for us that talks about the times that we're in. So we actually should be paying far more attention to it than we actually do. So, saying all that to say, let's we'll read it from verse 23. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. And the floors shall be full of wheat and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, the cankerworm, and the caterpillar, and the palmerworm, my great army which I sent among you. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God that has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. One of the things that God has gifted us with, and it's, it's something that every single person's been gifted with, is this amazing gift called life. And as you grow and as you develop and as you move through life, there are things that happen. We discover that life can be good and life can be bad and life can be boring. It can be satisfying. It can be dissatisfying. We also discover that sometimes, through the ebb and flow of life and the ups and downs and the good things and the bad things, that there are choices that we make that can help predict what's going to happen in our life. You can make good choices and then good things will happen. You can also make bad choices and then bad things happen or consequences. There are consequences to everything you do, every single thing you do. Sometimes you don't see them. Sometimes somebody else feels it. We also have people who will make choices in their own world that affect us. We have no control over that. We just happen to be the recipient or the overflow or deal with the consequences of somebody else's choice. And there's nothing you can do about it. And sometimes those are good things, like Craig taking me to Hawaii. That's a good thing. Sometimes there are bad things, like Craig disappearing to Fiji and deserting me for most of this year. I'm not bitter at all. We also discover that sometimes somebody makes a choice and then we make a choice and these two things collide and then you get left with something. Sometimes these are good things, sometimes they're not good things, sometimes they're painful things, sometimes they're devastating things. We also discover as we go through that some things happen in life that are purely just God's blessing. They happen to you purely because you happen to be alive on the planet. And it's got nothing to do with you being a Christian or not being a Christian. It's got nothing to do with how much time you spend with God, if you acknowledge Him or if you don't. They just happen because you are on the planet. The Bible says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. You get blessed by rain when you walk outside. It doesn't matter if it's raining, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not, you're going to get wet. That's just how it works. Jesus said that there is a thief on the earth who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Sometimes things happen in your life that are a result of the enemy actively working against you. He brings along something that completely destroys your life and he brings an attack to you. Once again, not a lot you can do about it. You just have to go with it because that's life. When that sort of thing happens, when we have lost things, when we have things have been destroyed. When things have happened to us that are not good and that are painful, there's not a lot you can do because time keeps moving. Time doesn't stop just because you had a bad day. And time doesn't stop just because things weren't going the way you wanted them to. And as much as you wanna stay in today, Monday is coming and I'm gonna have to go back to work. Do you understand what I'm saying? These things happen. And I've discovered in my own life that even though I have to move forward because that's what happens, regardless of whether I want to or not, there can remain a void in your life. Because of a loss that happened, I then adjust. And it's not that, I always talk about, because people say, oh, you know, you learn to live with the loss. Well, that's true. You learn to live with a new normal because your life was one way before, you've had something devastating happen, you've had a loss happen, a death happen, something's happened. And you have to create a new normal because time keeps moving and you have to as well. As much as you want to stay in bed. So there remains a void. And sometimes what happens is you just have to live with it and it kind of hangs around you. And it kind of taints things for you. And it just kind of sits on your life. And you might be in a good space, but there's still this something missing. I experienced this in my life. I believe that I've had seven years of my life stolen. And the reason why I say that is when I was 18, I started to develop um, these really awful symptoms and everyone said, oh, you know, it's the stress of the wedding and prepping for the wedding and blah, 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 but in actual fact, after two years of very invasive tests, it turns out I had Crohn's disease. With Crohn's disease, it's a very nasty, insidious disease. What it does is it, for me, what it did is it completely destroyed and put ulcers through my whole bowel and through my esophagus. Then I did something very rare that one in every 10,000 Crohn's patients does, and it spread up into my stomach. I then... became a person who was fearful to leave my home. And the reason why I was fearful to leave my home, and you know, forgive me for being crass or crude or however you wanna term it, but you get to the point where you have no control over your bowels. The minute you have to go, there's no waiting for the car to pull over, there's no walking across the mall to where the public toilets are, you actually have to go right that second. Then, because of all the other issues that I was experiencing, I began to have leakage from the bowel. So I stopped going outside. The only place I went to was church. I stopped actually hanging out with friends, stopped being, Craig and I were uh, part of the youth ministry, we were uh, assistants to, to, um, to, the, to Jürgen and Leanne actually, Matesius. and but it got so bad that I was too scared to leave the house. And so for seven years roughly, I had these massive long periods where I was a hermit. And it was awful. It was an awful time, we were newly married, we were trying to, you know, go through Bible college and trying to do a whole bunch of stuff and I was just not having it. I was just, I actually bailed out of Bible college, didn't even finish the second year because it was just too much. So I have lived my life with the belief that I've had seven years stolen. Because it took seven years for me to go through all the surgeries that I had to have and to recover enough to begin to feel like I could function again. Because I had to give up serving in the church. I had to give up a whole lot of stuff. I stopped going to church on Sunday We used to go Sunday morning and Sunday night. I stopped going to church on Sunday night because it, it was just too hard. And because of that, the choices that I had to make through that, they affected Craig. And as a good husband, he didn't continue to serve in the church. He did he did little bits, but he knew that his priority had to be with me because of what I was going through. And so, when we came out here to pastor this church, I felt like we were here seven years later than we should have been. And I feel like, and this is why God brought this back to my mind. I was thinking about the church over the last couple of weeks. And I was like, this is all great, God. And you know, and to be honest, the church is in the healthiest position financially it's ever been. We're in the healthiest position with the number of people serving. Can we have more people serving? Absolutely. Can we have more people committed to turning up? Yep, absolutely. All of those things. But we're in a really good place. But I feel like we should have been here seven years ago. I feel like we're playing catch up. I feel like there's still this loss of this void sitting in my life. And so even though I'm joyful about this, I'm joyful about where the church is at and I'm joyful about the different things of the vision that's coming to pass, I still think to myself, we should have been here seven years ago and it was my fault because of bowing out of world, bowing out of life, bowing out and and trying to deal with that. I've handicapped everybody by seven years. When I was kind of thinking and praying and stuff, I really felt God say to me, why have you accepted this? Well, I've accepted this probably for the same reason you guys have accepted things that have happened in your world. Because it's life. It's just the way it is. That's what happens. And there's not a lot I can do about it. I just have to accept it and try to live with it and do the best I can and maybe try and play catch up and move on. It's just life. But if you think about the fact that Jesus is our Redeemer, and it's really quite... It's been great that we've just had Easter because it kind of helps. We've just had Easter, so we know about Jesus, our Redeemer. We know that he came to restore a relationship with God. So if he's come to do all that, why will he not restore everything else? He's broken curses. He's done all this amazing stuff for us. And if you go to Acts chapter 3, verse 19, this is, this is Peter speaking on the day of Pentecost. This is the birth of the church. We've had Jesus come Um, And he's been crucified, he's raised from the dead, He spent time with the disciples, and he's ascended back to heaven, right? And then what we have is Peter getting up after they spent time with the Holy Spirit, being anointed, they get up. Peter stands up, and this is when they had 3,000 people added to the church. This is the birth of the church, and he says this. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. What this is saying is that Jesus has is coming back. This is talking about the second coming of Jesus. He's already gone. First time is talking about the second coming. And it says this, that Jesus won't come back until the times of restoration of all things. Until the times of restoration of all things. We are living in this gap. We are living between the time that Jesus ascended to heaven and before he comes back on the second coming. We are living in the time of restoration of all things. So if you've got things that have been lost, if you've got things that have been stolen, if you've got things that somebody has broken, God said that Jesus will come back after he's restored it. Does that make sense? The interesting thing is when you look into, and I don't have time to do the whole thing because I've got so much that I want to kind of cover. But if you look further and you study it, when you talk, we talk about restoration, if you go to Acts, oh, sorry, Exodus 22 verse 1, it says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So if somebody steals your ox, you're going to get back five. If somebody steals your sheep, which is more relevant to New Zealand, you're going to get back four. This means that if you have something that has been stolen from you, if you have something that has been broken, if you have something devastating that has happened, if you have a loss of any kind, then you're going to be restored back five times what you lost. Because when God restores, He doesn't give you what you just lost, He gives you back more than you lost. Does that make sense? Right. So now you're probably thinking, this sounds all great and wonderful, Trin, but how does that relate to what you said in Joel? I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) So I want to break this down for you verse by verse, but I need you to remember that Jesus is going to restore everything and you're going to get back more than you lost, right? Got to remember those two things in light of what I'm saying. Verse 23. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down on you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. Zion in the Old Testament always refers to the church. Always refers to the church. Hebrews says, we have not come to Mount Sinai where the law was given, but to Mount Zion. And if you read through um, Isaiah, Joel, Ezekiel, Psalms, any of those books, you will see that there are two entities that God works through on this earth. Those two entities are Israel and Zion. Israel being Israel and Zion being the church, being us, we are Zion. So whenever you read that in the Old Testament, God's talking to you. The interesting thing is, is that God makes a lot of promises both to Israel and to Zion. So he makes promises to Israel and he makes promises to us as the church. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't concern myself too much with what God has promised Israel, because I am not Israel. I am not Jewish. What God is doing with them is the promises that he has established with Abraham, and he will continue to work that. What I am concerned about, what has God said about Zion? What is the promises God has given to us as the new church? So when he says here, be glad then, you children of the church. Let's make it specific. Be glad then, you people of CFC. This is for you. This is about us. And when he talks in here about the rain, rain in the Bible can either be literal rain or it can be figurative rain. In this instance, we're talking about figurative rain. And the rain in the Old Testament always represents blessings and times of joy. Blessings and times of joy. And I love that. I love that that's what it represents. So what it's saying is, you people of CFC, God is going to bring you blessings and times of joy. Are you feeling blessed and full of joy at the moment? If not, God's bringing it. And if you are, awesome, you're already experiencing part of that blessing. Verse 24, and the floors shall be full of wheat and the vats shall overflow with new wine. Wine and oil always speaks of the Holy Spirit. We're going to overflow with the Holy Spirit. That means you're going to overflow with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That means you're going to overflow with the fruit of the Spirit. That means your life is going to be fruitful. When they're talking about here in this whole verse, is they're actually talking about prosperity. And prosperity isn't just your finances. Prosperity, Finances are a part of prosperity. It's not the whole thing. Prosperity is talking about fullness of life. It's talking about your health. It's talking about the things that you do. Everything you put your hand to will have a blessing upon it, and you're going to experience fruitfulness. I love that this is what God is saying about us, the new church. Verse 25, and I will restore to you, first of all God says, I will restore to you. Not I will restore as a general sense, but I will restore to you. This means he's made it personal. It's not just a blanket statement that he's made that sometimes we can think is for us. This is personal. I will restore to you. So whatever it is that you have lost, he's going to restore back to you. Does that make sense? Now, I want to say something here, because I understand that some of the things that we experience in our life are so painful, and they should never have happened, and people did things, and I'm so sorry. Sorry. That was never God's intent. But we take these things in our life and we shut them away. And we close the door and we just go, I'm not going in there. I know because I've had things like that that I don't want to touch. I don't want anyone to know about I don't want to talk about to anybody. And I'm not saying that today we're gonna open that door and expose all of that stuff. What I want you to do is to entertain the possibility that God can restore what was broken, what was stolen, what was lost, what was hurt. I want you to entertain the possibility. Just go and stand by that door knowing that God is standing there with you because Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you and just consider the possibility that he will restore that. And like I said, I don't know What's gone on in your world? But he will restore it and he will make it better, but only if you're open to that possibility. It says in the verse that the, I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, the cankerworm and the caterpillar and the palmerworm, the great army which I sent among you. Now, locusts in the Old Testament can actually represent literal locust or it can actually represent, and this is what it means here. It means a day, a time, or a season of devastation. A day, a time, or a season of devastation. The seven years that I lost, that wasn't a day, it wasn't a time, but it was a season of devastation. And God can restore that Whenever you see locusts, we're talking about devastation. Devastation, like locusts, can just flood in, destroy your life, and leave again just as quickly. Have you had those days where you wake up in the morning and everything's fine, and then something happens, and by the time you end that day, you just wish that day had never come? I remember when Craig's brother died, when he, first of all, when his body was missing and they couldn't find him. and Those of you who know the story, he was an instructor at Taranaki and, um Some kids had jumped into, got swept into the water and he went in after them, saved one of them. Bryce and two of the um, other boys lost their lives. And we were joking and laughing around the dinner table and with one phone call, took less than two minutes. Whole day gone, ruined. Because sometimes the locust comes in that quickly, you don't expect it, you don't see it. There's no one. It comes and devastates your life, and it leaves again, and you're just left with the damage, and you're left with the mess, and you're left with the hurt. So when I was looking into about the locust, if you look up the words, or the terms "cankerworm" and "caterpillar," they actually refer to the growth stages of the locust. You see. The cankerworm worm is when it's in, it's in its newborn stage and it just kind of creeps around. The caterpillar is just before it becomes a full-grown locust because it eats, does the same sort of scenario as a butterfly. Now, I'm not trying to turn this into a biology lesson, but what I wanted to point out to you is that God can restore no matter where you are in the process of your devastation. Your devastation could be at the beginning and God can still restore. You could be right in the middle of your devastation and dealing with your loss and God can restore. Or the devastation could have happened before and you're trying to deal with the overflow of the years of trying to restore that. God will restore that no matter where you're at. It doesn't matter where your devastation sits. The process it's going through, He will restore it. You just have to be open to that possibility. And it says in this verse, it talks about the palmer worm, and I'll be honest, I thought the palmer worm was just another growth stage of the locust. No, no, the palmer worm is a completely different locust. And this one I think is more insidious. See, So you have the the type of locust like they had in the plague of Egypt that comes rushing in, destroys everything and leaves again, and it's that fast. But the palmer worm, it, it doesn't actually destroy everything. It comes in, and it nibbles away. It doesn't destroy your marriage. It just affects your marriage. It doesn't destroy your finances. It just affects your finances. It doesn't destroy anything, but it just sucks the life out of it. And so this one is worse, I think, because you know what happens? We think, oh, well, you know, I don't have a great marriage, and yeah, this sort of stuff happened, but, you know, our marriage is okay. So you don't ask God to restore it. You don't ask God to fix it. Or else you go, oh, it's just a little problem. What, you're gonna wait for it to get big? You need to deal with it. You need to go to God and say, God, something's eating at my life. God, something's eating at my finances. God, something's eating at my relationship here. I need you to come in and restore it because you don't want the canker worm to just continue to just erode your life. It's gnawing at your life. In the last part of that verse, it talks about the great army which I sent among you. He's talking about the locusts, and he's talking about the gnawing locusts, but this interesting part here, the literal Hebrew text reads, it doesn't say great army, it says, those that are strong for war. Those that are strong for war. And there are people who come into your world, and sometimes not by choice because you're related to them, and if you're sitting next to someone right now, just look straight ahead. But they come in and they are strong for war and they gang up on you and they bully you and they make you do things that you weren't comfortable about doing. They get you involved in drama that you didn't really want to be involved in. They actually just just destroy your life and they consume your life and you end up with this toxic relationship. God can restore even that even if it's someone you're related to, even if it's someone that you have to be around, God can restore so that that doesn't happen anymore. Amen. You've got to remember, this is for us. This is a promise to us about the things that God will bring back. Verse 26 says, And you shall eat in plenty. The locust comes and there's devastation, but God says it doesn't matter. Because he says here, I will restore and you shall eat in plenty. That word plenty is also the root word where you you may lay claim to what you once had. You will lay claim to what you once had. The thing that I'm really believing for is that not only is God going to restore to me the seven years that I lost, but he's going to restore to me the fruit that I would have had in those seven years. Because I'm going to eat in plenty. I'm going to eat in plenty. I'm going to see that come to pass. Now I understand that some of you are probably sitting here, and you're like, "I can't see how that can happen, because you know, I, I lost this relationship, and it can never be restored, because you know, the person's died or moved on or whatever." You know what? God may not restore that exact original relationship, but He can restore a better relationship to you. See, we always think of restoration in the terms of, "Here's my new, here's a car, you know, buy this old car and I'm going to restore it back to its original condition." God doesn't restore anything back to the original condition. God restores it better than that. That's how he works. But all you've got to do is tell your doubt when it comes in to say, how can God fix that? How can God restore that? How is this going to work for me? You know, you've got to do what I do. Just tell the doubt to shut up. I'm not listening. And you know what? We all get doubts. And the doubts creep in. And I'm constantly saying, "Nope, I'm not listening to you because I know that my God restores. That's actually one of his names, the restorer. So I'm just going to, I'm going to hold to that. The verse says also that you shall be satisfied, and that's a really awesome word, and I wanted to just point out something that when you walk through life with this loss, and and I talked about it tainting things, it actually taints your relationship with God. No matter how hard you try to not let it, it does because you don't experience the full joy that God wants you to experience. Because you're still a little bit sad that maybe this happened, or I lost this, or this, you know, this devastation was in my life. How can I fully embrace God as God the Father when my father did this, or this, or this? But God says that you will be satisfied, which means that he will, you will enjoy his presence. Because that word satisfied, it's actually the root word, enjoy the presence of God. You will actually find that you will once again be able to sing praises. You will once again lift your voice in praise. That praise will begin to bubble up out of your life and overflow into everybody else. And that is what the whole point of it is. And I love that he says that we as a people will never be ashamed. You will never be found guilty. You'll be able to look back on the things of your past and you will not be ashamed. You'll be able to look back on the things that happened to you in the past and not be ashamed for that because it wasn't yours. You'll be able to move forward and instead of looking at your future through the eyes of your past or through the eyes of what you're ashamed about or through the eyes of what you feel disgraced over, you'll be able to look at your future through what God has said and that will actually enable you to believe that God will restore I want you today to believe for restoration. I don't believe you're going to have a moment where everything's going to be restored to you in one hit because that's not how it works. But I want you to be open to the, to the thing that God can restore and that he wants to restore. We see this really beautiful story in John chapter 4. It's a really beautiful story about restoration. And he says, Jesus comes to the town of Samaria. and he's, Now, if you actually had a map... If you had a map and you looked at where Jesus started and where he was going, you would see how far out of his way he went to go to Samaria. And he goes there, and he's by this well, and it's the middle of the day. It's really hot. The disciples have wandered off to get some food and stuff. And Jesus is sitting there, and this woman comes. And she gathers up some water. And as she's standing there gathering up her water, Jesus says to her, will you draw me some water? Now, this seems like a really normal conversation just a a thing to say but it's not because for several reasons one Jews didn't speak to Samaritans they just didn't because they were considered unclean people males didn't speak to females because they were all misogynistic back then and so you have and this other odd thing that happened is this woman came at midday no one did anything at midday it's too hot but she comes at midday to draw water and so as Jesus is talking with her and he says to her, I can give you living water and then begins to say to her, where's your husband? And she goes, I don't have a husband. And he says to her, yeah, you speak truly because you, you have had five husbands. The man you're with now is not even your husband. The thing about that is this probably explains why she came at midday because the other woman wouldn't talk to her anyway. They're probably a little bit afraid. If she's had five husbands, she's probably a fairly attractive woman. They don't want their husbands hanging around with that. So she's been ostracized by her own people. But Jesus comes and he has this interaction with her, speaks to her, and then she becomes so overwhelmed by the love of God and so overwhelmed by what Jesus has done that she goes out and she braves everybody else who's been rejecting her. And she goes out and she speaks to the people and draws them in, and that whole township gets saved. What Jesus did is he restored her to a relationship with God. He restored her to the village, to the people that would be there after he had gone. Because all of a sudden she was not ostracized anymore. And this is what God does to our, does for us. He comes along into our situation. And you know what? When she went in that day, she did not think that anybody was gonna be there. And the fact that he spoke to her and he restored dignity back to a woman who had lost it for whatever reason. I don't know why she'd end up in that situation. I guarantee that was never her plan. Maybe her husband had died, her first husband, and then she gets remarried. Maybe her father got so frustrated because what happens in those days is when when your husband dies, you're supposed to move on to the next brother if he's unmarried. And if that doesn't happen, you return to your father's home. But she wasn't living with her father. So he's rejected her and yet here is Jesus and he comes and he restores her back into relationship. The other story that I think that speaks so well of restoration do you remember the story of the little boy with the five loaves and the two fish? So here we have Jesus, and, and He's been speaking to the multitude, and they said there are 5,000 men, because you know, they didn't bother counting the women and children, so you could easily say there's going to be at least over 10,000 people there. Easily. And the people are hungry, and the disciples come to Jesus, and they're like, we can't feed them. And Jesus goes, well, what have we got? And there's this little boy... And He has five loaves and two fish. Now, these aren't big loaves. like We think these are just little bread rolls, basically. Enough for a little boy, not enough for 10,000-odd people. And the disciples come, and they steal His lunch. Now, I'm saying they steal His lunch because they didn't know Him. And, you know, they're adults, and He's a little boy. They take His lunch, and they give it to Jesus, and Jesus breaks it, and He blesses it, and He gives it out. And at the end of the story, it says that they gathered up 12 basketful of leftovers. Who do you think got those leftovers? It wasn't the disciples, wasn't their lunch. God doesn't steal anything. So if he used that little boy's lunch, that little boy got those 12 baskets full of leftovers. You see, he had taken from him five loaves and two fish, and he was restored back more than he'd lost, greater than he'd lost. And I love that. I love that. Because that's how God works. He restores back to you greater than you lost. And I don't know what the locusts have eaten out of your life. I don't know if they're still gnawing away at your life. But I know that my God restores. And He restores more than you've lost. You just have to be open to that possibility. I just want to share one last thought with you. One last story. King David has an affair with Bathsheba. And through the course of this affair that he has with her, she falls pregnant and gives birth to a son. And but because of how David went about it, trying to kill her husband and all this sort of stuff, the child becomes sick and he's so ill. And David spends a week, while this child is ill, he spends a week wearing sackcloth, sitting in ashes, mourning, mourning. And then the child dies and his men come to him and David gets up and he goes, washes himself, cleans himself and he goes straight into the temple and he begins to worship God. And his men come to him and they say, we don't understand. While the child was sick, you mourned as if he had gone and you, you were mourning him and you didn't spend any time with him. And now that your child has died, you actually go into the temple and you're worshiping God. How can you do this? And David says this and he says, why should I grieve? when I know I shall go to Him in heaven, when I know I will see Him again. (laughs) I don't know if you've lost children. And I don't know if you lost them through miscarriage. I don't know if you lost them because of choices you made. But I know this, that God can restore Even that. He can restore a relationship from the children you lost. I have three children residing in heaven that I will see. But I still believe I experienced my restoration here. You see, the first child was due in December and we lost that one. The second child I lost on Christmas Day sucked. The third child... I lost again in December. And I was always, you know, we'd had Madison in between and that was awesome. And I remember saying that after the third child, that's it, we're not doing this anymore. I can't can't do this, Craig. I know you wanted to have more kids, but nah, I'm done. Some time had passed and Madison was three. And she says to my sister, we have to pray for mummy and her baby. My sister says to her, she's not pregnant. Yes, she is. My mom's pregnant. We need to pray for her. And Chantal and Madison, because Madison and Chantal are both very stubborn, they argued for quite a while. In the end, Chantal gives up. And she goes, fine then. We'll pray for your mom. And did those, one of those, you know, hey, God, we just pray for Trinity and the baby. Pray that, go, pray that everything goes well. That was it. Like, and Madison was fine. She was happy as after that. She just skipped out and that was all good. Shandale, of course, was relaying the story to me and I, and I sat her down and I said to her, honey, why do you think mommy's having a baby? She goes, oh, you are? You're having a baby? It's a boy? Am I gonna call him Seth? I was like, oh, no, sweetie, we're not. Anyway, a week later, I find out I'm eight weeks pregnant. Went and had, had to have a scan, found out it was a boy. I said to Craig, I think we need to call him Seth. Seth actually means appointed by God. The funny thing is, is that Seth was actually supposed to be born in the middle of January. I actually had him on the 22nd of December. He restored to me those other losses. And he restored December because I hated Christmas up until then. It was just a sad, sad month because all I could think about but it's other children that I'd lost. I can tell you exactly how old they'll be today. And if you've ever been in that situation, you could probably do the same thing. But I don't know if like me, it was through miscarriage. And I don't know if maybe you made decisions and you had an abortion and you lost. But I want you to know that God can restore. And I believe that if is my restoration for that. Probably why he's so spoiled. <laughs> He also has a personality for enough kids to cover those other three as well. But God can restore. God can give back anything that you've lost. All you have to do is believe that He can do it. So I don't know what you've lost. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, I'm not even in a relationship with God. He can restore that too. That's what He does. But I just want to make one last thought and I'd like you all to stand to your feet because we're going to pray. God cannot restore anything to you if you think He is punishing you. God cannot restore anything if he thinks, if you think He is punishing you. You gotta know that. He is not punishing you. It's funny in this world, When things go wrong, we always look to blame God. You know, when things go wrong, God doesn't look to blame anybody. He just looks to restore, because that's what He does. That's who He is. So I want you just to close your eyes and take a moment. Think of what it is that you need restored. Think of what it is that you want restored. And I want you just to ask Him, God, restore. God, give back more than what I lost. God, if it's healing that the person needs, Father, I pray, God, that You restore not only the healing that they require, the physical healing that they require, but God, that they would be healthier, that they would be stronger, that they would be able to walk in complete health and wholeness. God, if it's a home that they've lost, Father, God, I pray that You restore not only the home they lost, but You restore back two homes to them. Father, if it's a relationship that they've lost, Father, if it's one that cannot be brought back, Father, then I pray that You would bring to them a relationship that would be greater than the one that they lost. God, if it's finances that they've lost, God, that You would open up the floodgates of heaven and pour out such a blessing, God, that they would not be able to contain it. Because You are the God who restores. Thank You, Father. God, for Your restoration. Thank You, God that You don't want us to to just be saved, but You want us to live as heaven on earth. Thank You, God. And God, that we would go forth never thinking or feeling ashamed of what went before, but only focused on the restoration that You're bringing into our lives. Thank You, Lord. Thank You, God.